0: I.O. podcast. My name is Sean McCool, and I'm here with Jeffrey Way, Chris Vidal, and standing in for Taylor Otwell is Matt Machuga. Thanks everybody for coming on.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Hey. Oh, so we have one week until Laricon in New York.
2: Yeah, yeah it's gonna be, gonna a good be time.
0: crazy. Matt, you haven't been on the show for a while, but you know you're pretty kind of thick into the community. Are, are you talking at Laracon,
1: or? Uh no, I'm just going to hang out, and okay. pretty much do whatever.
0: Yeah, I wasn't sure. You you, you show up at a lot of those events uh, on the speaker list, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just didn't go because um, I was going to give a JavaScript talk and we had uh, John Rezeg and everybody <laughs> coming in, so I really can't compete against that.
2: Yeah, it's some stiff competition. Yeah, I can't believe John's going to be there. That was crazy when Taylor told me that. I mean, that's a big deal. I'm curious mm-hmm. how it's going to go over because he hasn't, he doesn't really have any involvement in the PHP community. So I think he's talking about um, Khan Academy, which he works at. So I'm curious how that's going to tie in, uh, if at all.
0: Oh Well, I love Khan Academy, and I hope he never goes into my account and looks at the things I've been working on. So. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really embarrassing for me.
3: Like basic algebra.
0: <laughs> it's like real low-level stuff.
2: I'm excited to see how many people are going to be there. Like Because at the at the last one in Washington – that was, you know, a little over a year ago. I think we had maybe 100 people at yeah, most. Yeah. So, like, back then, it was pretty small. You know, it's kind of cool that, Matt, you were there, right?
1: Uh, No, that was right when my daughter was born. Like, I, I think I was in the hospital that week. Um, she was born the week after, but I, I had to miss that one.
2: Okay, mm-hmm. I guess it was just Sean. But anyways, it's kind of fun that we were we were there at the very first one because I don't think it'll ever be like that again.
0: It was actually, like, artificially low uh, attendance, too, because they, they kind of decided, oh, 100 people, you know, we better get a real small venue just in case. But then a lot of people were on the waiting list and couldn't get in because uh, – and that's the same same as true this year. They went with, like, yeah. I think, like 200-ish people. Maybe I, – I don't know. I don't know the exact number, but – I think it's, like,
3: 275.
0: A, are you joking?
3: No. it should be wow. about that much.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> and still, there were a ton of people on the waiting list.
3: Yeah. And that was funny about ticket sales, too, because they were slow at one point. So every day, Taylor is like, I don't know if it'll sell out. I don't know if it'll sell out. And, of course, they do. And then, of course, immediately once we announced it sold out, like 80 people just sign up that day for the waiting list, you know?
1: It's pretty much like credit on eBay.
2: Yeah. I'm going to take credit because, like, eight episodes or eight podcasts ago, I said that we were not going to have enough room. And Taylor was like, I don't know. I just felt it. It was going to be way bigger <laughs> than we had room for. So I'm taking credit for that.
3: Nice. He's not here to defend himself, so that's, that's legit. <laughs>
1: exactly.
3: It's gonna uh,
0: be.
2: we know
1: what the after-event parties are?
0: I don't know what anything is going on. I Honestly, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited just to be there. Actually, we're going to be there from the 13th to the 19th, Mitchell and I. And I think that right after the conference ends... We're going to, like, just straight hackathon on the Laravel.io site. So if anybody wants to participate and you're going to be there, you know, a couple days after the conference, then let us know. Nice. Which, and it it happens to be the topic of my talk, is that code base and the uh, architecture of it, so that the way it's built. uh, So that might be a good lead-in for for people to come and, you know, kind of know what they're walking into, have an idea of, you know, how to contribute.
2: Yeah. So will you be touching on CQRS and things like that?
0: Oh, nothing like that. Um, I'm I'm really focusing on uh, an architecture that is based on use case kind of as a first-class citizen, if that makes sense. And it, it uses, like, the command pattern uh, from in a rich service layer to interact with the domain. So I'm going over the command pattern used in that way and then domain events, and that's pretty much all I'm going to have time for.
3: That's great, that's gonna dovetail into what I'm talking about really great, really well because I am um, I hit in those same points i don't I don't get into entirely how they work, but I use that as part of the broader scale of like this is an architecture you might want to look at
0: actually like a week and a half ago just like trashed all my slides and started over, but I'm definitely liking kind of how it is now. It's a little bit simpler uh it's i I originally had like the story to go with everything, but now I just cut it out and just talk, talking directly to the devs It's like hey devs. You guys know what, you know, controllers are and how, how things happen in the real world. So let's just, you know, talk about that stuff. And so when I did that, everything got way clearer and I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And plus, I'm like incredibly passionate about these techniques right now because just they're changing the way that I'm doing everything. Like I, I just recently started a few greenfield projects. I'm, I'm only, you know, doing this stuff all from the, from the get go and things are just coming together in a really strange way
1: and I'm loving it. <laughs> Are you covering any any of the uh, philosophies behind Laravel IO itself, like kind of the discoverability stuff and um kinda of how we're trying to make a community center, which is kinda of different from like a lot of the other dev communities do, where it's kind of scatter blasted? Yeah, it's um,
0: it's really uh like a half of a half type thing, like where I talk about what Laravel I.O. is, where it comes from, um and also what we want it to be. Mm-hmm. And then kind of talk about, you know, if you want to dig in the code base and help, because kind of the point of the whole app, right, is it's a free large app. It's like it's an MIT licensed large application. And you don't, you know, come across those every day. And, you know, we've had people message us saying, we'd like to use this code base to run our own community. And so we're like, this is very cool. We want to do this. Just maybe allow us to come out with the next version if you want a better written one.
1: Right. Well, it's great when people come into the room, they're like, do you have an example of a Laravel app? Just, yep, link them to the Laravel I.O. repo and just send them on their way. Yeah.
3: So I have a question for you guys, Um, and this is a little bit of a selfish question because it's going to possibly help me word some stuff in my talk. Um, But I I was wondering what you guys think about why architecture is is worth talking about, is worth, like, caring about, Um, like, what is the goal of, of good architecture? In in your point of view,
1: making our jobs better, like not miserable all the time, I guess, even from the basics, I would say, like if you come from uh, well, since you're doing a lot with bash files and things lately, let's look, look, look at it like that, like one giant bash file is just full of uh, procedural mess and nothing makes sense or a nicely structured application where you can clearly find what you're looking for. So it's like the ground level, and then you can get into um, object oriented or different like functional paradigms, or even a well structured procedural. It makes your life better you You don't struggle, your IDE can figure out what you're doing. Um, yeah, this is my take on it.
2: yeah, for me, it comes down just to, to just handling stress. you know, like when like Matt was talking about with that procedural code, you can fall into these situations where you don't even want to open up a class. You know, because it's just gross and, and you're, you're terrified to make any changes, maybe because there aren't any tests behind it. And so it's, it's kind of that, that forbidden zone where you just kind of keep those sets of classes out of the way. And that's really bad. You know, you, you can't, you can't clean up your app. Uh, what's the best way to phrase this?
3: Like refactoring or just in general? Yeah, like like,
2: obviously it's never good when, when you're terrified to touch a class. And I think everyone knows that feeling, whether it's your code or, or some legacy app that you inherited. So for me, that's the, the primary reason why I would focus on many of these techniques is just to make it so that never has, so that never happens. Um, and it doesn't get more complicated than that for me, at least.
0: I kind of think of architecture as like, um, just like a tool. So you have your IDE, and it has all these abilities and everything in it, but then you have your code, and your code is almost like a user interface in itself, right, so uh, systems with different architecture have different ways that you interact with them in order to achieve different goals. In my mind, a really simple architecture for a really simple site is just perfect, but a really simple architecture for a really complicated site is is impossible to do well it's impossible to do right it's just it's gonna fall apart it's gonna be difficult to manage you have to increase the complexity in order to make something that's very complex more simple it it sounds contradictory but it's just the way it is architecture to me is about designing things in a way that it'll grow and not become more complicated as a result
3: right yeah that's that sounds great like what I'm hearing is that it's really about maintainability and, and kind of like almost a long-term concept um, because as your site grows, you're going to increase complexity, but you want to reduce technical debt also, right? So the architectural concerns that go into that might be really important to, to reduce the technical debt overall or keep it as low as you can. Yeah. So an
0: example would be, for example, the open-close, uh, which says that in order to add new functionality to to a system, Uh, you would like to be able to do so by adding new code, not editing existing code. And so one way of doing this is to inject things into a specific class. So I have an HTML to Markdown converter that I've been working on. And basically, you can add new tags just by creating a new derivative class of like a tag superclass or a tag interface, I don't even remember But you just inject these into the converter, and then it'll loop through them to figure out how to handle various DOM elements. And if it can't be handled, it just ignores it, right?
2: Yeah, that's pretty cool. The tough thing about the solid principles is, like, I I think newcomers learn about this and think they are law. You have to follow them. So in the case of open close, like, if you were to edit an existing class, then somehow you're breaking the law. And it's like, it's just not like that. These are... I think of them more as guidelines, like this is something you should you should strive for. But also at the same time, if you if you adopt this methodology that you never edit a class once it's done, well, then you can very quickly end up with a bunch of code bloat because you're you're extending classes and all of that. So it, it, it's like, at least in my mind, it's it's a good idea. It's a it's a. I don't know. You guys know what I'm talking about at all? Like, it's something you should strive for, but it's not law.
0: To me, each yeah. of the principles are pretty different. Like, open closed is describing a workflow, how you would work with the code base. So, you uh, aim to cr- put things together in, in a way that allows you to, over time, do this. So, open closed requires you to kind of decide what is going to change in the future so that you can make. You can set up your system so that those that specific kind of change is easy. So if you know, okay, I'm going to be continuing to add new types of tags, then you make it so that you can just inject tags, and it works in a way that it loops through the tags and does what it needs to do. Um, that's because you know you're predicting that there will be more tags in the future. Sometimes, you can, scenario, Sometimes times, you can do that. That's a good
2: scenario. yeah, many times you just have no idea what you're going to need to do. So. I guess that's what I was trying to say. Like, It's something you push for, and in your case, that's a perfect example of it, where you can kind of predict what you're going to need to do so you can structure your app in that way. But then in other cases, you just can't predict as well as you would want to.
0: Yeah, but like in Liskov's substitution principle, I mean, if you think about that, you would just never want to violate that. I mean, what possible reason could you have to allow, you know, uh, refuse bequest? You know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so I want to play devil's advocate a little bit and ask you guys, at what point do you start optimizing your object graphs a little bit? Like, um, in, in my JavaScript projects, it's become kind of a thing where I have to start trimming down because things are moving too slow, um, and I have the 60 frame per second limit I have to hit. And in Rails, in ActiveRecord, a lot of objects are spawned off to do simple things like find a record, so Aaron Patterson has been working on something he calls adequate record, where it trims down all the extra cruft to see what he can get it down to and still keep the system organized. Um, have you guys run into anything where you have to optimize yet, or is everything still, for the most part, running fast?
3: Really, everything's been running fast for systems I've worked on. Um, granted, the majority of my days right now are working on a, an older app that's kind of getting modernized slowly. Um, but even then, it, nothing really gets too, too slow. Um, yeah, in I'm, my
2: experience, people do the opposite. They try to optimize way too early when they have no need to whatsoever. Yeah, right. Oh, and that absolutely. really
3: gets in, into this concept of, um, you know, man hours being more expensive than than computation, right? So buying servers is cheaper than um, than the man hours you would put into trying to make it faster.
1: Right. Yeah. One of the things I see with especially students coming out of computer science degrees, uh, they're all like super focused on speed, like everything has to be fast. And then we spend a couple of years kind of getting them to think, no, a better structured architecture works for you. And then at some point they run into it. OK, we got to make it fast again. It seems like that transition is kind of hard for people to get back into. So Mm -hmm. I'm just always curious to hear how other people have to optimize when they're kind of pressed up against the wall.
0: Yeah, I think that it's pretty normal for for people who are new or, or whatever to focus on performance because so much of your life is battling against the computers, battling against the sluggishness. Your computer's not fast enough to run a game. The Internet's too slow. So I think it makes sense to think about it from that perspective. But only when you really know, okay, where are the slowdowns actually coming from, do you realize kind of where you have to put your efforts?
1: And I think better tooling like HHVM kind of enables us to think more in the uh, the object-oriented way or in just um, I can expend effort to, you know, like I can expend the cycles on the CPU to make my code cleaner and then let the compiler do what it's supposed to do and optimize for me.
0: Yeah having a compiler is is a great help in that but also like when you're talking about rails and active record i can't help but to think that are there are there more bloated things in in modern web development than
1: rails active record not much
0: so like <laughs> to me i i'm kind of at this point where i'm pretty disillusioned with active record as a pattern um i think it's uh not as good a fit all the time as I mean, we just use it for everything. I mean, do you guys use anything besides Active Record like all the time? I mean, yeah, you you know, you probably use Doctrine at some point in time or whatever. But uh, I just think that it, it's pretty clear that I have been using Active Record in situations where it probably wasn't a good fit. And maybe maybe if we're using a different kind of mapping system, we don't run into so many performance problems, and we can can focus on that object oriented design. I I keep coming back to the feeling that over and over again from like the Codenighter days on, slowly bit by bit, the tools have changed and our, our knowledge has changed to the point where we're able to get closer and closer to that object-oriented design. Uh, but it's always felt wrong in one way or another. It's felt wrong for the fact that there are global super objects in, in like CI or, or you're not actually really working in the object-oriented um, way. And then using active record where we shouldn't it has always kind of backed us into a corner to the point where we're not doing that object oriented design that we think of when you you know you're learning object oriented design like what's a shape but you know a, a circle inherits from shape or whatever you know that kind of thing
3: yeah
1: honestly uh, I think the active record pattern is like sent everyone down a path where they think too much about persistence right off the bat and like I know it screwed me up for a couple years and honestly like it's it's great when you're getting started and it's awesome when like you just want to pound something out real quick but as soon as you get into those like large app situations it gets kind of frustrating cuz you just want like a really small object that's not carrying a lot of weight not carrying a lot of methods and you just want to do like real simple things with it but you have to bring the entire database with you or it has to map exactly to a database uh table or row you know, it just gets frustrating for me after a while. I'm pretty, pretty over it for most applications.
3: In fact, everything I've ever read, like the, the more you get into this higher level of architecture and call it quote unquote higher level, um, but the more you read about it and all these books we read are from people in, you know, doing Java and small talk and stuff like that. But, um, the more you read, the more you realize how much you butt against active record in almost every instance. Um, especially when dealing with things like a repository pattern, especially when you start reading about domain-driven design, where you want this, like, rich domain layer. Um, but right off the bat, we're tying a database to it. So you're you're doing multiple things in this class that should really, you know, ideally, when the situation merits it, it should just be this entity that has some business logic that defines the constraints and behavior. Um, but now we're also doing persistence with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, for... It seems like our domains should be for high-level policy, and, and we're mixing too much direct implementation in there, and it's making things more difficult to work with, so our domains end up being this strange mix of service layer and domain combined.
1: Oh, for sure. And like it, it can get really frustrating after a while, because you, you have to carry the weight, and... Like things that you want to optimize, you just you can't do it. It's not possible. Um, and like you know, you can create value objects to kind of work that direction, but they're still sitting on an active record based object.
2: Right. Um, For me, it always seems like this constant struggle between convenience and maybe like well, I don't know what you'd call it, architectural purity or whatever. But it's always like, okay, well maybe especially with Laravel, like if you want to not use. Uh, eloquent in Laravel, you can do it, but it seems like in the process, you make all of these sacrifices. And so many times I come back to this thinking, like, is it worth it? Is it worth all of this uh, added complexity just to get some of these benefits? And I haven't made up my mind just yet. You know, you like you can use doctrine with Laravel if you want. But like I get mad at doctrine because it's not. You know, it's not intuitive for people who don't use Doctrine. It seems like you either love Doctrine to death or you haven't even gotten past the, the introductory tutorial that's on their website. So that, that gets annoying for me. Like it, and it, it sort of ties in a little bit with what DHH was talking about during his, um, his TDD keynote, where are we, are we abandoning things like Active Record to make our applications far more complex? Is um, so that something we're doing. Just as
0: a quick note, uh, a developer I work with, Mitchell, uh, Mitchell von uh, Weinharda, it he is working on this package called uh, Laravel Doctrine, and I know there's already one out there, but he, it directly ties into all of the Laravel configurations, and the design is to have it melt into Laravel. So you're still doing your, your connection configurations and stuff all the same way. It's not like doctrine just bootstrapped into laravel it's like more of a melting so you might check that out on, on packages or or github or whatever it's it's um laravel-doctrine uh, it's in the mitch namespace i uh, he says cool. it's it's going to be um you know ready for other people to check out when this hits like probably the podcast comes out probably like tomorrow
2: cool. cool i'll check it out
3: I'd be interested to see if it like implements the interfaces needed for user management too, like the authentication library.
0: Oh, and I meant to say, um he has traits. It comes with traits and stuff so that you can just do in your in your entities use timestamps. And it'll have the same kind of functionality that eloquent timestamps has and use soft deletes. and it adds uh, soft deletes all just by slapping in a trait.,
3: Neat. I like traits.
0: Yeah, I used to be really against them, but the the more I've kind of gone down this road, the the less against them I I get.
1: Yeah, attacking on a grouped up functionality is a really good use case for them, so it's definitely definitely good to see.
3: So testing, you want to talk about <laughs> testing?
2: Wanna- so what did you guys think of DHH's uh, keynote? Did anyone agree with him?
3: I did to an uh- extent. I um,
1: yeah, agree with which points
3: because
1: uh, <laughs> very of old, right? yeah yeah he, he just that's his nature of making the extremist uh, notions and it's really great to stir is people it? up talking. So
2: yeah, he knows what he, like he knows what he's talking about. So people are saying he's being inflammatory. Well, he's smart enough to know that if you just go right along the middle, then nothing's nobody's going to talk. So being a little inflammatory is what he's trying to do. You know. And so I don't I don't think he should be knocked for that. Yeah. No, not at all. Well, it, it's annoying because like so many people like I think he has earned the right to be respected and what he says I think should be should be considered. And so many people just immediately took his talk without even really taking 5 minutes to think about it and disregarded it as him basically being an idiot and not knowing what he's doing and not knowing what TDD is. And for me, I feel like that's insulting. Just because he built rails doesn't mean he's automatically right. But I think it does deserve a discussion and consideration without completely disregarding him as somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. That's ridiculous, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, just because DHH built rails doesn't mean he's an idiot.
3: <laughs> oh, God. Uh <laughs> <sighs>
0: I, I yeah. liked his talk. I thought it was it was really good. It was really interesting. It had a lot of good points. I think there, there's a lot of philosophy in there that doesn't directly relate to just what what you know whether or not to do TDD. To me, it was more like don't buy into a specific religion when it comes to these uh, methodologies. You know, I, I think that that was what the talk about is about less about testing and test first, and more about come on guys, uh, let's let's not get into groups and start you know attacking each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's. He's really into pragmatism, so I mean he he doesn't like the zealotry behind a lot of it. And I I don't blame him. Is that even a word zealotry? Anyway. Um so like a lot of that makes sense. And I don't know, a lot of people a lot of people in response gave like a good um kind of like back and forth on that. Like Gary Bernhardt's post I thought was really well written and it showed the pros behind it. But, you know, for a lot of the people using Rails, they probably don't need T D D. So it probably does make sense. It's just like when you when you get into that testing mindset, you're either for it or, you know, I mean, we see a lot of people in uh, Laravel and IRC where they they test, but they don't test first. Doesn't mean anything's wrong with what they do at all.
3: How do you guys test? Um, I'll preface that by saying I tend to spike and stabilize. Uh, I don't know if that's a term. I think reppy programmer came up with. Um, Uh, that's been
1: in in java for a long time yeah in Java.
3: i first heard about it from grumpy programmer so i'll give him credit um but basically like i don't i go in not really knowing what interface i want in my classes right kind of like the public interface that other classes use um but I'll refine that when I test. So I'll make the code work, and then start refining it. And that's when I add tests. And as I test, I fix bugs. And always, I've always found found bugs when I've tested. Um, and I refine the API at that point. I don't like go into it knowing what I want it to look like at the end. But I also have mentioned that, and some people have said, "Yeah, this is basically test driven development." Um, but I think the difference is. Um, well, I mean, it's it's slightly different, right? Because I'm not writing a test first. I'm writing code first. So I don't know what well, you guys did.
2: What some people would say is it's fine if you just want to, you know, that's that stage where you need to write a test, but you just don't really know what you're doing yet. So some people would say, yeah, tinker around, play, do a little bit of pro- prototyping. But when you're done and you you have a better understanding of what you want to do, delete all of that, and then begin again with TDD. And it'll turn out a little bit different than you did before. And I kind of like that that methodology. I think that makes sense in my mind, if that's the way you want to go about it.
1: I guess in regards to new features, I tend to poke around, like, you know, I'll spike something out, and then I'll go back and change it, make it the way I want, and clean up the interfaces. Because sometimes when I'm going through, I pick really horrible names for things. So I can kind of fix that up later. Um, if I'm refactoring or if I need to fix a bug, I, like, I'm really big into, um, writing a failing spec for it first, like an integration spec or an end to end or however you want to call it, where I can see how it's actually failing and then I can go in and repair that. And I, I guess it depends on the project, whether I actually will do like the unit test first, but, um, mostly I just want something to prove I've actually fixed it at the end of it. Other than that, I'm pretty liberal about it. Yeah, I do test first on accident. So
0: <clears throat> I'll figure out kind of how I want the code to run and I'll test it. But when I get tired of going back and forth to like looking at the code and testing stuff and I need to add a new feature or something, then I might just start stubbing out the tests ahead of time. And I've I've done experiments with TDD uh over and over again with with multiple um partners. We've did we sat down doing pair programming just to kind of go a uh, build projects and explore. And honestly, I never really, I guess I never really felt like I was just good enough for it, or like I was skilled enough to do it. Um, it. It's not for me, at least not right now, but I still think as a discipline, I have respect for it and... I consider it something that's worth exploring, and I think that by pursuing TDD, you will become a better developer. You will become better at testing and writing code, even if you don't want to use TDD. I think it's just another one of those pursuits. I don't really believe that there are finite things that you should be doing specifically. I think that you just have to find a pursuit, have a good enough sense of taste to choose one that's going to... Give you value, and then at the end, you have the value, and then you can just go on to the next thing, continue to drive value from whatever.
3: I feel like people who pursue the craft of uh, coding, in other words, are always kind of looking to improve how they do it. I feel like test driven design is, or I'm sorry, test driven development is getting up towards um, after a few years of that, right? So it's kind of like a natural progression where you just lay some code down and it works like, kind of like CodeIgniter style, I guess. But even that's within a framework, so you don't necessarily start there. Um, But then you learn more and more. You might read about some of these architectural concerns, and then testing gets involved, and then test-driven development is kind of a natural evolution of your learning, almost. Um, So I don't even know, like, does it make sense for people to just jump into test-driven development for people who have never written tests before?
0: Oh, no. No, I mean, you can't. Like... You can't even do TDD if you don't have a decent object-oriented design. So you can try, and it's going to make you realize, holy crap, uh, I need to improve my object-oriented programming. Um, It's just impossible.
2: But that's sort of what DHH was talking about. Like, so many times when you, if you were to ask, or if somebody new to this stuff were to ask, "Well, well, why are you doing that? Why are you injecting this in there? And then our natural response is, oh, this makes it a lot more testable. And that's sort of what he's going after is like, OK, so you're making your code just incrementally less intuitive to make it more appealing to the tests, And is that a good thing? And I totally get what he's saying from that point of view.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a really valid concern in that situation. You should never like tear up a good code to make it testable if you don't have a reason to do it that way.
2: Right. Especially reason. in the PHP world, like we don't have some of the flexibility that the Ruby community does. So some of these things we have to do, you know, we can't just uh, stub out existing classes. You know, we just can't do that on the fly. So I, I I, it does seem like it's this constant struggle of making your code testable versus sacrificing the readability in the process. And is that something we really want to be doing?
0: I, I just I, I loved all of DHH's examples about code. Um that was hacked up just to make it testable because <clears throat> that's how I do it. Like all of his examples were how I do it. <laughs> 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 but it's just, it, it's like, it's that thing where you can get away with no complexity and that's fine. But you know, I have this, for example, my, 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 uh, for example, the enterprise apps I work on are so big that there's just, it's just impossible to do it with, Directly act- accessing active record in the controller, and I'm sorry, I'm just not going to agree with directly accessing active record in the controller when it comes to, you know, building apps. I think that that's something that you can do, and that's fine, um, in a really like light, light case scenario. But when it comes to client work and building stuff for your clients, it's almost like I don't know. It's just, it, to me, it's just I don't, I don't think it's great.
3: Right, and I want to save some of the stuff for your talk, but I think the use cases really get into that, like how you define ways your application can be accessed. Yeah. Um, and when you write stuff directly in the controller, you get away from the ability to do that because then you'll be repeating code in your REST API controllers versus your you know, normal browser web request
2: controllers. But then at the same time, would you tell somebody who is new to Laravel that they should never use... Uh, eloquent within their controllers.
3: No, actually,
0: also, also actually, I would inform the them. Ever. Yeah, I would just inform them to go ahead and start this way because, to me, um, you have to start somewhere, and and that's fine. You can you can change things later. Like you can refactor an app, but it's just going to cost time. And sometimes that time is okay, like when you're getting started and you're learning or whatever. And sometimes that cost just costs your company tons of money.
1: Yeah, I mm. I really view it like kind of climbing up a ladder. And each rung, you're learning something and you're, you're deciding, is this right for me in this situation? And as you're learning, you don't know enough to make those decisions for the most part. So, I mean, it's pretty much like when all the, the folk were coming in and saying, I want to make a repository for this, but they couldn't understand PHP syntax. It's like, um, like I really like that you're excited, but you should take a step back just to understand what's happening and what kind of benefit this repository is gaining for you.
0: Jeffrey, do you want to kind of tell us, or, or Chris, whichever whoever feels better about this, you want to tell us uh, a little bit about Grumpy's recent newsletter?
2: Okay, so basically, Grumpy Programmer sent out a newsletter. He does one like a month, every month, and I can't remember exactly what he said. Mostly, it was it was somewhat complimentary to Laravel, surprisingly, because he, I don't know, he's hard to figure out. Sometimes he says he doesn't like Laravel. Sometimes he seems to be a little more friendly. I think he's just one of those anti-framework people, which is which is tough, and that's another discussion. But mostly he was complimentary of it, but then it was always kind of shadowed by, oh, I would never use it. But it's not the worst thing in the world. It's sort of what I took from it. What did you guys take from it?
3: One of the things, one of the points was about how the framework was partly successful for its good marketing, um, which I disagree with. Disagree Um, as well. I think that's, I mean, it's it's an easy one to disagree with, right? Because the framework has a lot of benefits, you know, all the things we've ever talked about from, you know, the ease of use when you get started um, and how it grows with you as you become a more knowledgeable developer.
1: I will but, say the same- Taylor's marketing is kind of good because yeah, he, he yeah. really likes the suspense and he has a lot of fun, so...
2: I think it works. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Taylor knows what he's doing when it comes to marketing. And I would say he, especially in the PHP world, maybe does it better than anyone. Even like he, he, for example, at the upcoming Lyricon, he's going to release something that I think is pretty big. And he keeps sending out little teasers. Like I, I think um, he was tweeting md 5 versions of little clues. And I think that's like incredibly smart. And it's something that not many people do. So he understands that. That, yes, Laravel is a very good framework. It's very well bit, built, but it's also a product, and he does he handles it really well. So I do think that factors in. It's just not the only reason why Laravel is big, clearly. Right, yeah.
0: I think there's like two things at play here. I think that from the very beginning, Laravel was very community-centric, and I think that that's one of the primary reasons that it, it grew in the way it did. And I also think that there is a very clear vision from the beginning, and the vision is – um, you know, simplicity and flexibility and what all of this marketing is, is just a consequence of the vision, right? So it's just that, like, the communication of what this, this thing is and where it comes from. So, I mean, to me, <clears throat> Laravel's a success because it, what it is, the vision behind it resonates to, to a lot of people. I, I think that's the the major factor, and then the fact that we have this really compelling community that's there to help and uh, support the product and um, that kind of thing. I think that that's a, a major factor as well.
2: Well, for a period there, the Laravel community was being branded as these like arrogant people who would jump on you if you said anything, and I have no idea where that came from. It would just be these random like these no, I don't these like Twitter conversations where somebody would say something, somebody in the Laravel co- community would say. Wait, can you elaborate on that? And then suddenly the Laravel community was pouncing on them. And it just, that wasn't the case. You know, I think the Laravel community is incredibly friendly.
0: The Laravel community is incredibly friendly. However, like, I think that (laughs) Taylor disallowing Robo from being on the Git issues and stuff is a little bit telling. I think that there were a few people who have, like, a really kind of trolly sense of humor that kind of gave a lot of people, like... For example, I talked to these people in this local user group, and they are of the opinion that Rob Clancy is the largest ass in the history of the Internet. (laughs) And to kind of know the guy, you know that he's, he's, he's different than that, but he sure as hell comes off that way. I mean, it's just... That's the way it is. But I, oh, that's I think
2: 1%. That, 1% of all people are jerks.
0: I think that when it comes to the Internet, the only thing that matters is what you see. And I think that if Rob or other people like that are on there kind of making jokes or being kind of mean or whatever, then that makes a huge impact. So I, I really think a lot of that comes from there. Plus, you know, during the whole everybody hate Laravel thing that ha- that lasted about two months, right? Um, I think a lot of people got really defensive, and when when you when they turn around and react like that, it it gives a, maybe a inaccurate perception that this is just how they are. But in reality, you don't know that they're kind of a little bit annoyed and, and struggling themselves with certain aspects. So I don't know. I think I think it's easy to see how this kind of thing comes about. I just think that you know you can't really judge a book by its cover. And the fact that it all washed over,
2: yeah, it's true. That's what they were doing. They've never used Laravel. So so many of these people have these incredibly strong opinions about the framework, and they will freely admit, even Grumpy Programmer, going back to his newsletter, he will freely admit that he doesn't use the framework, yet he has these big opinions on it. And that's like something that only happens in our community, right? You've never used it, yet you have this strong opinion on whether it's a good thing or not. Where does that come from?
1: Well, yeah, we also right. had, um, like, a lot of the people who were acting defensively, um, I mean, that's a typical thing. If someone's attacking something you're attached to, you feel like you have to defend it. And, I mean, it's good to resist that urge because a lot of times you don't need to defend something, like, uh, like horrendously bad because no one's attacking Taylor. No one's actually going after him with a knife or something. They're just saying, like, well, you should not call this a facade or something like that. And we had a lot of people coming out with like a lot of strong beliefs, like somebody was insulting them directly as people. And like, that was something Jesse and I, uh, Jesse O'Brien and I have been joking about where at Laravel or at Laracon, we we're going to start wearing shirts that said like Laravel sucks just to see who actually came up and started trying to fight about it. We're like, no, nah, we're, we're good, man. Like it's, we're not trying to aggravate anybody. It's just like, you gotta, gotta accept that some people have different opinions about tools.
0: No, we're just trolls and we're making you better.
1: <laughs> also, have ever discussed the fact that Rubbo changed his uh, GitHub icon to be a troll? The troll doll like, to the, make it more of, yeah, obvious. All. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. I, know, I know he gets bad on there, but that was one of the funniest things I've seen. Just because I, I caught it kind of like out of a, you know, the side of my eye. I was like, what is that? Oh, my goodness. If nothing else, he's funny. Like, I, I get why people get rubbed the wrong way. Because um, we have like, what, a, a year or two exposure to him, so we're kind of used to it, and we know he's, he's just goofing off or drunk. Um, but, yeah, I can definitely see why people get rubbed the wrong way.
2: But he's one person. that That's not, not, like, even remotely reflective of the community. Like, if you want to look at the Laravel community, look at all of the books and the sites, all of these dedicated sites, Laravel.io, Laracast, uh, Laravel Tricks. There's just nonstop stuff dedicated to the framework because people love it so much. Like when I, I I wrote about this in my book where when I first kind of got friendly with the community a couple of years ago, Dale immediately said, welcome to the family. And I, I love that because that's kind of how it feels like a big little family and plenty of people like Phil Sturgeon would say, you know, don't create silos. But, you know, these things are good. We are nice people, excluding just a handful of of trolls who know exactly what they're doing. They're entertaining themselves. So I don't, nice to- I don't know Rob specifically, but I would imagine he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's just entertaining himself.
1: Yeah, and it's nice to have our or little niches wrong. where now you're pretty much right. <laughs> it's just, it's <laughs> nice to have our niches where we can go and communicate and actually feel like a family. And I think Dale's been great at doing that overall. Like we have warm fuzzy uh, red pandas, pretty much the Laravel mascot, and that's pretty representative. Like in in IRC, we're all buddy buddy. Like we all know each other, we all talk. Um, and you know, every couple months there's kind of a change of the guard of who comes in, um, the newbies become, you know, more or less experts and they're helping people. Um, I've seen somebody get help the day before and now they're helping people understand what they did. So, you know, it works at the chain and people really do give back once they, they are taught something by another community member. And like, that's the kind of stuff that I really like to see.
0: Yeah, so people, anybody listening should feel free to drop by the Laravel IRC channel on irc.freenode.net. Uh, the Laravel.io website actually has an embedded chat client, so if you don't want to go through the trouble of getting a client, whatever, drop by, ask questions, hang out, read what other people are asking and talking about, you know, help somebody, pay it forward.
1: Actually, Jeffrey, from you saying I'm always in IRC a couple episodes ago, somebody came in yesterday and checked. Is it like <laughs> Machuga? i like, yes. He's like, oh, you are always here. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, he's like a robot. Like, is Matt in IRC dot com?
2: Well, I think people who don't use IRC think that you're just there all the time, and it's like, no, it, it may be open, but you're working, you know. And you'll get a notification if somebody messages you. But.
1: Plus, he uses a bouncer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, li- I literally look like I'm there all day. But nice. you know, like from eight to five, some uh, Eastern time. Normally, people can get a hold of me if they ping me. Um, I mean, it's not. It's not like I'm always sitting there like, oh, please, somebody talk to me. I'm normally like pairing with somebody at work or just working away at something on my own. And then I reply when I get a chance. But um, I mean, that's how IRC works. So if you like that extra asynchronous communication where, you know, you can respond if you want, just go sit in the room, like hang out. If you have a question, you just tab over to it, ask and go back to what you're doing until somebody replies or you could meet new friends like we did.
3: I have a side topic question that I just thought of as you were speaking. Um, for those of you who have done pair programming, how does that work for you guys? Or, like, how do you accomplish it?
0: Um, Jeffrey, do you want to start?
2: I haven't done it that much, honestly. I don't know how how much I like the idea. I don't know. I, I think people feel pressured into doing it, and maybe it's a great thing for you, or maybe you just don't have the, the personality type that's that's good for it. But, but personally, it's not something I do very much.
0: I can tell you from my experiences that when I'm sitting down with, like, Mitchell, and we're working through a problem together, whether it's on the whiteboard or in code, I mean, that's when we do our best work. Because I'll start down a path, and Mitchell will be like, hold, hold on, you know, what about this, or, or something like that. And then we'll be forced to stop and deal with that idea. And then we think that idea through, and then we have a new path, and we just keep going like that. So, I mean, that to me is some of the most rewarding time development I ever have.
1: Absolutely. And like Jeffrey's reservations on it are what you'll normally find out in the wild. People get worried that they won't be able to think or they don't really want to talk to people while they're working. And it's completely understandable. Like sometimes even us at work, we get tired and we just need to sit by ourselves for a little bit because we've had too much interaction um, or we need to like start reading through things and take a while to think. But, like, when we sit down together, kind of, well, remotely, I have to uh, connect to people through uh, Screen Hero. But when we sit down and work on something, it's like you have somebody to verify what you're doing is sane, and it's not leading you into a trap, or, like, your names are actually clear. Um, You pretty much also have a human compiler right there, since we're in PHP. They can kind of, well, mine's JavaScript, but, like, you can catch what you're doing as you're going through it. Or... Um like if you're tracking kind of an event system, it makes it really easy to trap yourself into a corner and somebody can say, hey, this is going in a circular dependency now. You just did this in the other file and, you know, it saves you 20 minutes of debugging um, or just the ideas that you can come up together, come up with together are there's a fair chance it's going to be better than something you come up with on your own because you have them to verify it. And you can uh, kind of use the rubber duck technique and just talk it out.
2: I wouldn't doubt that. Some people take it really far where it's like, okay, this person is in charge of writing a test and then this person's in charge of making the test pass. Do you follow that kind of methodology at all? Or is it more just working together?
1: It's mostly working together. Um, Because, like, I mean, ping-ponging is kind of fun where, well, like, you can alternate who does the test, who does the whatever. But usually if we're pairing, we're trying to work something out. Like, something isn't going right or we're trying to, to fix some bug that came in, so like the number of tests we usually have to write are fairly low, so it's just kind of we'll write the the uh, integration spec at the beginning, make sure it's failing, and then just kind of start diving in from there.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, like Mitchell uh, and I don't work together on the same computer just because we want to. Like we are working on our on our own separately, but it's un- when we have a problem that we need to fix, like an architectural problem. And we're thinking, um, okay, well, where does this need to be? Let's think it all through. And that's when we do a lot of the whiteboard stuff. And then that's when we sit down on the computer and start banging stuff out. It's Working on the whiteboard with a group of people and sitting down on the computer programming with a group of people is like the same thing to me. It, you don't do it all the time. You just do it when you need to overcome a problem. And other people may have their own experiences with this. I have no clue. All I know is, you know, what we do. And we only get together long enough to kind of – create an understanding and once we have that understanding and once we have all that worked, up, you know, worked out we can split up and I work on my part and he works on his part because we're of the same mind at that point and also I mean I, I just want to throw this in there that I feel like I have grown so much as a de- uh, developer from being able to pair with Mitchell that it, it I have just very positive feelings about sitting down and working on code with another person now
3: That's awesome. I've always wondered about how you avoid kind of running into each other, like editing the same file or, you know, just other stuff where you kind of get in each other's way.
0: That's the beauty. When you're working with other people, you both know what the goals are and you just split up the
1: the tasks. It's a pretty great experience when it actually, like when you start gelling with the other person, if you're kind of conflicting personalities or conflicting thought patterns, sometimes it works for your benefit, but other times it just gets really frustrating and you should probably rotate out with someone else. Um, but it's also a really great way to pick up, like, kind of tips and tricks in your environment. So, like, we have a bunch of uh, Vim users at work. And, you know, like, today I uh, asked my coworker to hit control caret, which is control 6, and that'll just pop you back to the last buffer you were on. And he didn't know about that. And, you know, from him I learned about unite.vim, and that got me some cool stuff. And then I've been pairing with some Emacs guys lately, and I've kind of been switching over to Emacs just under the radar a little bit. And I'm still using Vim inside of Emacs in a weird way I'm not going to go into, but um, I've learned a lot through him. So, like, that's been beneficial to me outside of the programming itself, but to help me integrate my environment without taking up a lot of time trying to have somebody introduce it to me after hours. So there's some added benefits. It's kind of nice. Plus, I get to socialize instead of sitting in my office alone all day. (laughs)
3: Nice Do we all work remotely in this podcast right now?
1: I do Oh wow, I think we do Well Sean, you got your office But you're technically remote from all your clients, right?
0: Yeah Um, Nick, Mitchell and I, we got an office together But we're all independently self-employed And we all have our own clients Even though we work on stuff together as well
3: Mm -hmm. Cool That's just kind of neat
1: Remote teams
3: Yeah (laughs) Of course, I guess that explains how we're at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time doing a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pretty much.
0: It's 9 p.m. for me. Would not be possible.
2: (laughs) Right. Can I change the subject a little bit? Um, I'd love to talk about sequential tasks. This is something I, I, I think is really, like, if you come across some kind of GitHub application, I feel like if you look at the person's controller, that gives you a really good idea of what kind of developer they are. It just shows you, like, how they go about things. Are they the types that use application services? Are they the types that that put everything in the controller? Do they use something like CQRS? You know, you can learn a lot about a person by, or a team, by what their controller looks like. So what do you guys personally do in those situations where, um, the example I always use is, uh, say, a user signs up for your application, all right? And if you if you read the general tutorials we do, usually it's very simple. You just create the user and redirect. But we know that in real life that doesn't happen, right? You have to do all of these things, like you need to sign them up for a newsletter. You need to send them a welcome email. Maybe you want to schedule some kind of follow-up email three weeks later. You know, there's all of these various things that you need to do when this action happens. So I'm curious, how do you guys handle that? Do you fire events? Like, do you just... Uh, put it all in your controller? Do you create an application service and then just do it sequentially in there? How do you guys tackle this stuff?
3: So I like to use events. um, And my thinking there is that anything that's not primary to that action, so for instance, creating a new user, um, could be, um, I'll call it a secondary action, but I'm just making up that term off the top of my head. Um, And that'll be driven by, right, (laughs) right, that'll be driven by... um, (laughs) events. So I create a user and that event itself will trigger other events, uh, sending an email, getting this person in a drip, marketing campaign, um, sending them for a newsletter or whatever, um, which gives you a few things. Like one, you're not kind of muddling up this, this use case, this code of creating a new user with other concerns. And then at the same time, you're also giving yourself an avenue to asynchronously do the other tasks. So the events could fire to a queue job, and that could get run in the background somewhere. Um, Or maybe sometimes your events actually have to do something complicated, and that will go back into your application and do like this whole other thing that could be, you know, almost the almost the result of another web request. You know, it's something complicated enough where it's like another use case of your application that just happens to have to follow this one other use case. Because um, your events are almost like a controller, right? They can, they can potentially do all these things to your application. So it's kind of like you use an event to offload other concerns from that one initial action that fires off that event.
2: Now, do you have, like, a single event handler class where you handle everything related to that? Or do you use other classes to handle these events? For example, you could have some kind of... Um user event handler or user, user signs up handler class or something. And then within there, once again, if you wanted to, you could just kind of do it procedurally. You, you inject everything you want, your mailer, your newsletter sign up, whatever. And then once again, you could just do it procedurally in there. But then at that point, are you saving too much effort or do you handle these in other classes? So you have one event handler that listens for when a user signs up and then you do your mailer and then you register another event listener. That's another option. What about you, Sean?
0: Yeah, so what you were kind of describing there for a minute was uh, like a transaction script. Like um, right. the user signs exactly. up, and then this list of things happens. You know, we create the user. We send them an email. We uh, sign them up to MailChimp. We, you know, do this, do that. Queue up a mail for to, to be sent to them in seven days, something like that. Right. Uh, now, those fall apart. They just they become... Un- manageable at a certain point. Now, at a certain level of complexity, that may be great. It may be really easy to understand. It may not be a problem at all. But I've kind of gotten to the point in in, in a couple of my apps where that, that kind of thing was just no longer an option. So I kind of went on a walkabout trying to figure out, you know, how to how to handle this. And so I ended up falling into domain events. And this is how I kind of got into DDD in the first place. So uh, now, in my mind, the domain is a specific place that contains high-level policy. It contains the, the, the concepts like when a user signs up, this sort of thing happens, this sort of thing fires off. When a forum post is replied to, you know, we need to go out and notify everybody who's subscribed. We need to maybe scrape that forum post for any time somebody said at and then a nickname and then notify that person that they were tagged in a message. There's a significant number of things because like where a transaction script would fail here is that, okay, now that notifications have been sent out, what about those people who wanted their notifications emailed them to them? What about those people who wanted their notifications stored in a digest and sent to them every day or every week? It's just impossible to do it with the transaction script at that level of complexity. So that's exactly the level of complexity that I got to before realizing that something really had to change. So now I think of the domain as just high-level policy. What should happen? And then the service layer is there to orchestrate kind of interactions with the domain. So, uh, for example, and I talk about all of this. This is the exact topic of my talk at Laracon oh, okay. in New
2: York City. <laughs> well, don't feel like you have to ruin it.
0: Yeah, so... <laughs> But um, it, it's to me these are kind of like where I'm very passionate right now. Um, but in my mind, you if you're going to add a user to your application, that user is that adding that user. It has an implication to your domain. It matters. You need to be able to do stuff. You need to be able to follow up with things like the, the person needs to be notified. The person, you know, any number of things that are important to your business Um, have to happen. So what I do is when I go to add that user, I fire off an event saying that user's been created. And then I have a number of listeners that are listening for that user-created event. But when I add that user, maybe I fire off more than one event. Maybe um, I fire off different events based on different situations. It just doesn't matter anymore because the events then arc out and handle everything. Each of those events has the opportunity to again through the service layer, interact with the domain, and trigger more events. And this is kind of where this uh, complexity kind of bites me in the ass a little bit. If you're trying to troubleshoot an event-driven system like this, and and when Uh, I say event, I'm absolutely not saying the Laravel event system. That's completely different. Those are hooks into components of Laravel, the framework. What I'm talking about is like events like when a user is created, you want to trigger a different behavior, uh, which we call domain events. But yeah... Um, you trying to troubleshoot through these chains of events can be absolutely awful. So you almost have to just be really careful and build up your debugging stuff a little bit. Like, I, I just have it so it logs out whenever an event's fired and what listener picks it up just automatically. Uh, because using things like a command bus and an event dispatcher, they give you a centralized point that you can do that sort of thing. So whenever the command bus is fired, I can just log out. Okay, the command bus has received this command, and it's decide to send to this handler for whatever arbitrary reason. But um, yeah, I I think that that's a really solid way. and And ever since I started doing this in my in my apps, I am able to think clearly through the problem, unlike before. So I don't like to implement design patterns if they make it harder to understand. I only like to implement them if they make it more easy to understand. So to me, this is a pattern that really says to me, there's something here, there's value here. I don't know if this exact implementation is is the best way to do something specific. However, I do know that there are advantages in this approach over the way I was doing it that is making my job easier, uh, the quality of my product better, and just like the the ease of ability to make modifications to a system like this is, is significant. And again, I talk about this for 45 minutes uh, at Laracon in New York City. So... Um, Definitely, if you're in New York City with us, find me, talk to me about this stuff. As you can probably tell, I love talking about this stuff. I'm very passionate. Mitchell is as well. We'll both be there and happy to talk to everybody and get, get their ideas about this kind of thing and kind of go from there. So,
3: so yeah. Yeah, That's very
2: cool. cool.
3: That might actually segue nicely into the PHP storm, as usual, um, section of our podcast. <laughs> Right. I finally figured out how to use Xdebug to, um, to, you know, stop execution where I want, um, to add a breakpoint, which actually might be pretty useful for trying to follow, um, you know, the execution path of your code. Um, so anyway, I got the help of Dan Horrigan. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm not sure. Um, but he helped me figure that out a lot. So I'm going to blog about that at some point soon. Um, it's because, you know, I, I can never get XDebug to talk to PHP Storm before. Uh, there's always some, like, gap missing in whatever article I found online. Cool.
1: So how do you feel now that you're working with a debugger rather than, like, uh, echo statements everywhere?
3: I just figured it out yesterday, so I'll let you know. Oh, okay. I thought you
1: made, <laughs> might have been using XDebug from, like, the shell or something.
3: No. Um, have I done anything cool with that? I really haven't yet. Um, I just I make use of logging, like uh, Sean was saying, to follow kind of execution paths, or you know the good old fashioned bar dump.
2: DD baby, yeah. <laughs> People like to hate on DD, but I I happen to like it. Yeah, DD's magic. That's
0: I have a, a way. I have a giant crutch, and it's called DD.
2: <laughs> I like the story of how like. With one of the releases, Taylor removed that function, and then everyone got pissed off, and there was like 10 pull requests adding <laughs> it back in all at once.
1: Dude, that was not a fun couple of days in the chat room. That was bad.
2: <laughs> uh. That's awesome.
0: That was back when Laravel used to change like at the drop of a hat.
3: Mm-hmm. I think we'll be at version 4 for a long time also. Um, it's, I think Taylor can't be here to talk to it, but the one of the user questions we had was the future direction of Laravel. Um, so towards that, I think, you know, Laravel going to be stable at four for, you know, the foreseeable future. And I think, I think, I think his plan is to, you know, just add features as it makes sense to, and also to do what he does best, which is to make complicated stuff simple. So, you know, we'll see some additional packages, I'm sure, come out and that kind of thing that really try to simplify all these processes we have to do all the time.
2: I think that's a good thing. Somebody tweeted me the other day asking, uh, whether their team should use Laravel or Zend. And I was saying I was a big fan of Laravel. And he was saying his coworkers, the other developers had a hard time with it. And they were, they were just completely basing it on the, the life cycle. So Laravel can't compete with Zend when it's been out so much longer. So their concern was, well, we can't invest all of this energy into this framework that very well might not be around in a year's time. And so it's tough to answer that question because, of course, my my answer is, oh, you don't need to worry about that at all. But it's still a valid concern that they have. It so also I, depends I think,
0: on your team, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, completely. So I think it's good that Laravel's is going to stay in the four dot star area for for a good time. If it just keeps jumping up five, six, you know, like on one hand, that. That sounds cool. It sounds like it's it's advancing very quickly. But for some of these teams, it just seems like it's changing left and right. And that's not necessarily a good thing.
0: Well, the core of Laravel 4 is the container and the service providers, uh, and then the, just in general, the structure of the repositories that make up the framework. So if there's not a particular reason to change the container or the Git repositories and the way it's structured, then there's no reason to go from 4. From, you know, right. from here you can just do major revisions. If you want to really start gutting stuff and changing backwards compatibility, yeah, I mean, you're going to probably have to wait until later or something, but still, I I mean, a major revision is just you shouldn't be upgrading from 4 to 4.1 just for no reason out of nowhere. You should sit down and figure out what's going on and then make a measured step forward. You don't just it's not like a minor revision like 4.1.1 to 4.1.2, which you can probably just, you know, composer update and be done with. Um you know, there, there's a reason that going from 4.0 to 4.1, uh, and probably 4.1 to 4.2 will have some it will have some upgrading instructions because, I mean, things change, and and that's just how it is. You can't update people's application skeletons because if you're anything like me, you're trashing your application skeletons the second you get them.
3: Hmm. Uh, right. So I have a quick announcement about Laracon New York City. Um, nothing grand, but um, be snappy. Um, BeSnappy.com is one of the sponsors, you know, as being part of Userscape of Laracon New York City. They're going to have a live blog during um, both both days, right? So that's at live.bsnappy.com, which is actually live right now. You can see it. There's just no content. because no one's live blogging right now. But that will be available, and someone will be manning that for the, the whole duration of Laracon New York. That's a neat little idea. I like that. Do you know yeah. who's
0: going to be doing that?
3: Uh, Alyssa and the Userscape team.
0: Oh, okay. good Nice.
3: And then that will also have contributions from the rest of us also. Very cool. Yeah, so we can't do uh, live streaming. That is terribly, terribly expensive, apparently. And actually, Sean, I don't know if you ever looked into that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, we have the opportunity to do it at EU, kind of, but I don't think that it's going to be within our budget. And <laughs> so it, yeah. it's complicated. It's just there's a lot of things involved with that.
3: Right. So the next best thing is this live blogging um, platform we're using. So it should be good. Speaking, Do you have a way
1: for uh, users to kind of patch in with um, like a hashtag? So, let's say like I take a picture of Sean up on stage, can I kind of send that to Liveblog, or
3: are we just so. assuming like Alyssa's going to grab all of it? She'll probably grab it. Um, right, it's a WordPress plugin, um, oh, I so it, it probably has you know some functionality, but not all the functionality. Of like a, of maybe if there's like a SaaS platform out there or something that does it, but
0: as like a gift to our listeners here uh we're not going to tweet about this or anything thank you for listening and and for making it this far in, the, in this episode specifically we want to give you a discount to purchasing laracon eu tickets so until laracon new york city starts you'll be able to use the discount code laravel io all one word lowercase no punctuation and you'll be able to get yeah, a discount off of that ticket it's a I'm not sure exactly at the amount of discount, so I don't want to say it right now. It's it's a pretty decent discount, and hopefully, you know, it helps some people be able to go.
1: Good, so it's a good little thank you. I like it.
0: Okay, well, I think that we're at about time, and our podcasts are starting to run longer and longer. I'm noticing. <laughs> <laughs> Four people makes th- the difference.
2: It's good. It's really. I fun. still think it's the right number, though. Four mm-hmm. is better than three. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you guys so much. Um, Chris and Jeffrey, thanks for coming back. Matt, I contacted you no more than an hour before the podcast, and you biked home in that time. And thank you so much for, for filling in for Taylor today. Oh, no problem. Well, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We'll see you next time or something. <laughs> Good
1: ending.
3: <laughs> I'm sorry. I just hate, of <laughs> I hate I, endings
0: and beginnings.
3: <laughs> I was about to say thanks to you, but I thought you would try again. So I was just like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to